This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to On the Bench. As we enter the third week of the season, it seems all the excitement and anticipation of the offseason was for naught. Just to come back to the same place we had hoped we all left behind, which is rock bottom. <laughs> Florida State fans are used to the one step forward, two step back routine this program has found itself in for the last four years. So here we are today. It's Monday. It's been two days since the Knowles lost to Jacksonville State starting the 2021 season off to an 0 2 start. I'm Josh Newberg. I've got Chris Nee and Brendan Sinone here with me. Um, welcome to the Rock Bottom Podcast, fellas. Chris, uh, how was the rest of your weekend? I know how half your weekend went. Uh, I mean, it was fantastic. Let me tell you, I woke up for church about 20 minutes late, so that made that journey really good on Sunday morning. Probably pleased my wife a whole lot that, you know, I showed up to church late for my kid getting his Bible. Um, yeah, <laughs> other than that, it was fine. I rewatched the game. I didn't feel any better after rewatching it. Dolphins won. That was a good thing. Yeah, that's where we are. Okay. Uh, Brandon, how are you hanging? Chris needs some Jesus in his life. I think that's <laughs> that, that was for the best. Uh, I fell asleep at like 3.30 checking the message board and trying to make sure it wasn't a complete meltdown, which it was, but I was trying to like salvage it a little bit. And I woke up at about 6 o'clock with my phone still in my hand like this, and I just thought it was all a bad dream. I so saw you guys playing, playing moderator at like 3.15 in the morning. I was just checking the message board, and um... – Good luck. You got to just let those people burn themselves out. I mean, they, they can't go till the sun comes up, right? I mean, that's mostly what we, I mean, there was a lot of burning out that we allowed to happen. There, there was a few times where, where you have to kind of defend yourself a little bit and that's what we did, but more or less it was Thunderdome for about 12 hours. It was no holes bars. Anyone pretty much got away with what they wanted to for the most part. Yes. And um, maybe today, I mean, today's Monday, the coordinators just spoke in the press conference. Maybe today we turn the page. So Let's review um, what did the coordinator say today? Oh, I get to explain. Thanks, Sinone. I mean, uh, I, 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 well, I, could, I could give you my... No, I want to hear Chris. Oh, I want to yeah. hear Chris. We'll, we'll I, I, Mike, I Mike Norvell started us off. He spoke, I don't know, somewhere around ballpark, 20 minutes. 25. Obviously, 25. A great deal That's of discussion about the last play, a lot of discussion about personnel usage, uh, discussion about some of the offensive decisions. Uh, there was definitely a moment where he got a little fiery when he was asked, basically, Notre Dame a good loss, JSU a bad loss, and he's like, a loss is a loss. I don't. He used crap not... twice. It's the first time I've heard him come close to swearing uh, in a public forum. Yeah, not much of a moral victory guy, and clearly frustrated by what transpired Saturday evening. So he speaks. You know, we move on from him. Kenny Dillingham is next. That's all focused, obviously, on the offense. Talked about the running back rotation and, you know, how he handled that. Mainly it came down to Lawrence Tolafili, who was not brought up in the question, but was brought up in the response. Uh, wide receiver miscues were talked about. The quarterback situation was attempted to be discussed, but it wasn't really a discussion that I think 
said a whole lot than we hadn't already heard prior to the discussion. Not a drastic departure from what we heard. Wildcat was discussed, which I truthfully will admit I probably blacked out during and really didn't pay much mind because I am no fan of the Wildcat. Spoiler, they're discussion? not they're not they're not going away from the Wildcat, Christopher. Bring you back We're gonna get into that. We're gonna get into the, some of the controversies in the next segment. I just I just want to know if there was anything prolific said today by the coordinators. Well, we have a healthy pause in between Dillingham and Fuller's arrival. I don't know why we just did. No technical difficulties in. in this one? No, 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 no technical difficulties. I, I presume maybe a meeting or a phone call that ran over and it got there a little bit late. They, they're they usually in the hallway waiting for the other guy to conclude and then they come in. It's usually very trains on time. Uh, Adam Fuller, obviously, first half of the 16 minutes he spoke to us, I think was largely just about that last play, dissecting it, decisions, what would you do differently, effort, was it good, effort's another thing that Mike Norvell also talked about with regards to that play. Then he talked a little bit about Wake Forest and a variety of other things, signals coming in, there being some crisscrossing with that, stuff like that. John Papucha showed up as a caboose of today's time with us. I don't know if we really gave John Papucha the love that special teams deserves because, well, it had been a long day to that point in time. But JP talked about special teams, Fitz bouncing back, Matt Shimano doing what he did in the game, including a 65-yard punt. Uh, the good and the bad of the return game with the Gunners getting down there being the bad, the good being the Keyshawn Helton return. And then Jermaine Johnson got a little love from his position coach. So that was mainly what the day was. As far as was it great revelations or anything, you know, said that I think changes people's opinions from Saturday evening. I don't think there was a whole lot of that. I thought when Norvell got a little passionate about the loss question, I, I think that was one moment where the uh, coach speak came down a little bit and it was a little bit more just straight up emotion, which was good to see because everybody's frustrated in the building. You get that, but. Yeah, that was about it. Okay. Well, I want to play a little game of revisionist history. Um, there's been several topics that have come up, whether it be on social media, on the message board, but just in general, this is what Florida State fans are still talking about come Monday. And uh, we're going to look back on a couple of things. I want to first review the last play of the game. I want to talk about the second offensive drive of the game. Uh, we'll get more into the wildcat and running back usage. Um, I think we can kind of look back in hindsight at this point, especially at the last play of the game. Okay. Um, we've heard kind of from all angles of this one. I think, Brendan, do you have a quote from the Jacksonville State head coach about what he saw on the last play of the game? The, both the Jacksonville State coach and the offensive coordinator. And, Chris, while I'm getting this taken up here and getting the quote, uh, if you want to get Mike Norvell's response to it too, to, to give him the fair uh, shake of things. But so this is what the head coach, John Grass said. This is from a sports. Was this Illustrated. after the game or was this after the, the game? game. Uh, he talked to the sports illustrated, like in a private interview, I think late Saturday evening, early Sunday morning uh, quote, third time's a charm. We felt like Damon could beat him. It was an inside release and he got open. He got open the play before that too. come back with the same play and made a great throw and catch uh, for the offensive coordinator said, quote, I'm surprised they didn't get the safety over the top. They kept playing the same coverage, so we kept calling that play. Hmm. Here's the Mike Norvell response, which came today. The play before, we were pressed down on the number one receiver, and he did. He got a clean release and was able to get vertical. On the last play, we backed up our corners, and we knew situationally there, with six seconds left, and they had a timeout. How far could they get to? In other words, setting up a field mm -hmm. goal. It wasn't a Hail Mary situation with that, and it wasn't a Hail Mary play. It was a go route, basically. That's me adding that. 
Back to the quote. We had a defensive call where we wanted to keep all routes in front of us, tried to get the corner soft, wanted to get outside leverage to see through what was coming that was not the same as we got beat on play before. He did get vertical and on top, so those are things that happen. Reflecting, that's something we'll always evaluate in a moment. You know, you have your reasons why you do things. We didn't finish, and obviously the play result can't happen. That's where, as a coaching staff, we take ownership and we take responsibility of what happened. That is on us. We've got to get it right. It's one of those things that's sick that's sick to have to live with. Yeah. The reasoning and the position we're trying to put guys in, it's something we have to continue to work and make sure we're all able to operate in that situation, end quote. So coming that – a, uh, that was a quote from today? Or yes. After the game? All right. So coming out of the game, you said it was a, 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 a different call, right? Well, yeah. Norvell said it was a – the call, what he said after the game, was that it was a cover two man, so two safeties. I know PFF had access to the all 22, and, and one of their game reviewers said it was not two safeties up top. Um, but Elliot also says the same thing within the 24-7 Sports Network. But based on what Adam Fuller said, Chris, like I, mm-hmm. I, it made it sound like the safety's responsibility was what you would – assume is for when you have half of the defense. So I, I don't know if anyone came out and said that it wasn't a, a two man under kind of deal. So speaking, Sydney Williams is a deep man on it. Jarvis yeah. Brownlee is on the particular receiver who catches the ball. Philly Johnson, former Duke player. So it is there man the and there the is play. a safety guarding. Jamie Robinson's trailing underneath. The effort's not very good from Jamie Robinson on video. His man who he's trailing underneath is actually the one who gets up and helps spring the last moment of the touchdown score by blocking up, I'm not sure if it's Sid or Brownlee that he gets. I think it's Brownlee after he had pivoted and changed direction. And that allows the receiver to score a 59-yard touchdown. But, I mean, there were, I think it was nine players within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage on a play that needed to go 59 yards to score with six seconds left. I know you have the concern of a field goal, but a field goal only ties a game. One would hope you believe you can win in overtime against a team of Jacksonville State's caliber. So I personally, I would much prefer having essentially a stacked deep position where you have multiple safeties and DBs playing at different tiers, different levels. And if you give up something 30, 40 yards downfield, you still have a 20 yard buffer to make it up. In this case, basically the receiver beat his defender. Safety gets caught in a bad situation, touchdown game over and you take a devastating loss. I, I find the last play to be inexcusable. I will be perfectly honest. I don't think any explanation I heard today was going to change my opinion of it. I think it's completely a coaching miscue. It's also players making a mistake. And to some degree, it's players need to understand that situation entirely and put themselves in a position to make sure they do not get to the goal line. That is the only thing that matters on that play. If it's going mm-hmm. vertically down the field, that they cannot get to the goal line. The clock is going to run out if that play is run for a 60-yard effort. If they're running some 30 yards to the middle of the field set up a field goal, you, you want to get them down. You hope they can't get the time off, timeout off and get the field goal. But at the end of the day, you just don't want them scoring more than three points in that situation. Yeah, there's only one thing that can beat you there, right? And it's a touchdown. So I know Mike Dorvell talks about the probabilities and analytics and playing to win. Uh, if you give up a 30-yard play with that gets a timeout within five seconds and it's a long 45-something yard field goal, uh, you're still not going to lose in that situation. You go to overtime and you're still the better team and, and you still have a 50-50 chance of winning. If you allow a touchdown, that, that's that's game over. Uh, I will add to what Chris said with what Adam Fuller said and kind of elaborate on the play. And he was asked about it four or five different ways. Talked about the effort, talked about the way guys responded, where they were at, where they were supposed to be. 
clearly that's not the way the DBs were supposed to to play in terms of taking angles and being in the right spot. But it didn't sound, Josh, like they felt like they had the wrong call. And we didn't hear that from from Fuller or from Norvell to say, ah, we wish we would have gotten something different in there. They said they moved their cornerbacks back a little bit. I think they were all playing about 10 yards off the ball, but but still, I mean, that's only a 10-yard buffer that you're putting back there. Uh, they wanted to rush four defensive linemen to try to pressure the quarterback and prevent a Hail Mary type of where he could just sit there and, and throw it as hard as he wanted to throw it kind of deal. That's why they, they ran what they ran. Uh, but they're, they're, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, there wasn't a, ah, we sh- probably should have gone into something different. Uh, yeah, you're right about that. And the rushing the passer portion is because they had been getting home and felt they had been effective in doing so, which is why they still kept that amount at the line of scrimmage and tried to bring some pressure on Cooper. Hmm. All right. Uh, we'll move on past that and go to the second offensive drive of the game. Chris, why don't you tell the people what happened if they don't remember on the second offensive drive of the game? Well, that's the situation where we saw both Mackenzie Milton and Jordan Travis on the field. Jordan Travis acting more as a skill position player instead of a quarterback. You know, some of that's trying to put stuff on film, which is perfectly well and good against an opponent like Jacksonville State. But I don't know at the moment it's the right thing. That was sort of explained away today, and it made perfect sense. And it's something I believed after the game. That was part of the script, something they prepared for, something they did, and they felt they could do at that moment. Obviously, if they score on that first drive, two drop passes on that first drive, then it's a little different. You're seven nothing, and you're testing stuff out instead of it being the situation it was. Um, but you know that drive, like many offensive drives in this game, were sort of blown up by miscues, either missed assignments or penalties, putting them in the situations that were not winnable downs. And that was something that both Mike Norvell and Kenny Dillingham spoke about today. Kenny Dillingham spoke at length about the self-destructive nature of the offense. That they're a highly inefficient bunch at doing 11-man jobs correctly, at keeping themselves out of bad chain situations with penalties and things of that sort. And that's wholeheartedly true, but, yeah, that's who they are. Yeah. Do you think we see more of it? I don't know. I, you, I, Kenny, Kenny I, was asked about that today, whether we see more of it, and he said yes. Yeah, they, they intend to use both quarterbacks, even though on the depth chart is updated. Mackenzie Milton is the only starting quarterback listed with Jordan Travis behind him, no more or situation as we've seen in prior weeks, I still think there's a likelihood we see both quarterbacks used in some form or fashion, and at times with both of them on the field together. Okay, that's what I was asking. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, it was – it seemed like they were forcing it a little bit to me uh, in those moments to, to get both guys involved. I mean, I know they don't want to lose Jordan Travis mentally, but – the way he's handling the opportunities, I mean, I feel like it's going to trend that way anyway. You know, he's been wildly inaccurate on his on his simple throws, and he gets a little beat up when he runs the football. So I, I, you know, I, I don't know if it makes sense, but we'll see if uh, if they keep pulling it moving forward. We also wanted to talk another another formation that drew a lot of questions, not only on the bench on our podcast, but also on the Knowles 24 seven message board. And that's the wildcat usage. Um, How many, I know they ran it the two times in a row, but how many times did they run the wildcat officially in this game? I don't know. 
I can I look that up. I, I can look that up while Chris is ranting about. I mean, it wasn't like no. Five. You don't need to look it up. I mean, it was like it was less than five, right? I was going to say four, four or five is what I. Yeah, was it was in that ballpark, yeah. and we've so, we saw it some the prior week too against Notre Dame. It wasn't necessarily like a staple of the offense, and they didn't really pull it out when they had things rolling. They pulled it out in some crucial situations. Um, well, it's, it's viewed as a short yardage situation play for them. And their belief is by basically removing the quarterback, having to hand the ball off, you're no basically changing the hat game with the defense of the way they have to account for things. The issue is I don't feel like it's fooling defenses at all. And FSU isn't good enough up front consistently enough to know they're going to win that battle. I almost feel like they're more effective in short yardage situations and jumbo situations and heavy situations when they're more traditional with the quarterback running back handoff and that that's turning into success. And we've seen that more in two games than when we've gone wildcat and it's not produced the results one would like. The wildcat was used before the fourth down situation in Notre Dame where they didn't convert the play that was highly talked about. I didn't mm-hmm. like it then. And in this second game against JSU, it was, again, ineffective and didn't produce the results they're looking for. In the way they spoke about today, they fully intend to continue to do it. They're not going away from okay. it. And it is a staple of what Mike Norvell has done. He did it at Memphis. It's been used in the past. It's not something that they just – drew up this year in the sand and they're going to use they've used this consistently in a mike norvell offense but they, it's not they had success it with point. it last year at florida state too like yes. there, there were opportunities where it was successful jay sean corbin's long run against nc state for example was out of the wildcats touchdown run last year uh, at memphis like chris said they used it all the time successfully it was a salt the game type of formation it wasn't just a short yardage we need to get two or three yards here for a first down right. it was they would use it on first down and use it on second down and try to get four or five yards and shoot up the clock. So it's something that has worked for them. Uh, I, I think to Chris's point, Florida State's offensive line right now isn't probably healthy enough or, or at top strength to where it can carve out those, you know, that one yard off the line of scrimmage and give you a chance consistently when everyone knows what's coming. Cause they don't throw the ball out of the wildcat like some teams do. Oh it's, no. Mackenzie Milton split out wide. Doesn't intimidate you. Maybe Jordan Travis, you know, I'm here for Wildcat, but Jordan Travis, that quarterback, and let him run forward for four or five yards, see what happens. Maybe he pops one loose. Huh? I'm also of the opinion with Wildcat, they have two quarterbacks who are athletic who can do something with their legs. I don't know that you necessarily be have to be in Wildcat to play the hack game. And we know Jordan Travis is a guy who changes the hack game. I think Milton's respected enough in a potential situation where he can run RPO or he can be just simply a keeper that – he would get the respect you need to hopefully have success on that play. I just, I feel like Wildcat for this team this year has been such a low probability successful play that I don't really understand the almost forcefulness they have to have to go to it. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. Let's look back at one more um, aspect of the game. And that kind of flows with the Wildcat, but that's running back usage. Uh, we saw Treshawn Ward be very effective. We saw Jayshon Corbin be very effective. We saw a lot of Lawrence Toafili, but not nearly as effective, um, whereas in, in past games he's kind of flashed for them. Do you think this was a situation where these carries were predetermined? I can't, you know, I'm just trying to figure out why they wouldn't go with the hot hand in this game. I, I did ask Norvell about the running back usage and if in hindsight they would have done anything differently with the way they used Lawrence to Philly late in the game for our listeners, he touched the ball seven times in the fourth quarter and that was only with two drives. So, and I think six of those were on one, one drive for Florida state. So he touched the ball a lot. And 
you know, FSU goes into games with, and they've talked about this before, Josh, Kenny, Kenny Dillingham specifically has, they'll go into games with an idea of, okay, this is how we want to distribute touches. And yeah, there is some room for if someone gets a hot hand to, to change it up. But I think on Saturday it was pretty clear. And it's what they said is that they weren't, they want to get Lawrence to Philly touches and they had already given Jay Sean Corbin about 15. Uh, they maybe want to see Trey Sean Ward touch the ball a little bit more as what Mike Norvell said, but essentially they kind of leaned on saying, you know, Lawrence to Philly last year, Lawrence was one of the most dynamic freshman running backs in the country. He was one of the top leaders in yards per carry. And those things are true. And this isn't like, I'm being critical of it. And I was on Saturday and after rewatching the game, I, I still remain critical of it. It's not a knock on Lawrence to Philly. It's a knock on his usage in that situation. If we're going to be critical of Willie Taggart for throwing screen passes in space to Jacques Patrick, your 230-pound back, uh, rather than, say, Cam Akers or someone, I wouldn't be critical of, of FSU for trying to go short yardage, run out the clock type of offense with Lawrence Toafili over and over again, in that basically you go away from Treshawn Ward, who's breaking tackles, making guys miss, and then Jay Sean Corbin uh, having a great game. You basically put him on the bench for, for a full quarter. I got a question. Why didn't we see DJ Williams? Uh, he was, uh, he's been dealing with some ailments that would leave him out for a little period of time. And he was back dressed out, but, but that was the first time he was taken off the depth chart last week. Uh, so he wasn't full go. Uh, Kenny Dillingham talked about having four running backs. I, I think they'll get DJ back in the mix fairly soon. Okay. One thing to add to the LT Corbin discussion and Ward discussion. Uh, Kenny Dillingham today referenced that LT's a chunk player, which he was last year, certainly for FSU. He has not been to this point in time this season for FSU. But that when the offense is struggling, as FSU did on Saturday, sometimes you are hoping for a guy that can give you that 14, that 20, those kind of things. And he is probably the most explosive of the backs that they have available. All that being said, Jay Sean Corbin's been FSU's best offensive player through two games, and he was entering the fourth quarter in the second game. I just feel like he's the dude you got to ride. And Ward was very good in that game. But at the end of the day, Corbin's the guy you got to trust. You go to the dance to win the game with guy that you most believe in is where I stand with. I, I love a good rotation. I think it's great to keep somebody fresh for the fourth quarter. But when it's game time, win time, put it away time, go with the dude that's the best dude in the room. Treshawn, let, your, let your workhorse back be your workhorse back. Yeah, and Treshawn Ward on his very last – his last carry, his last touch of the night, it was a 17-yard gain. Um, mm -hmm. Those guys were just having a little bit – and the offensive line wasn't clearing a lot of space. Jacksonville State was forcing them – to throw short basically is what they were dan daring them to do corners were playing off they were kind of crowding the inside of the offensive line so you weren't able to get a ton of push or a ton of running room uh but but you were able to get two or three yards consistently uh with jay sean corbin and trey sean ward and those guys were both breaking tackles and, and getting even more uh more yards after contacts uh that just wasn't in lawrence tofilly's arsenal on saturday and unfortunately it took took a lot of reps important reps to kind of come to that conclusion yeah, JSU defensively very much, and they, the coaching staff spoke about this today, they kept everything in front of them. They kind of challenged mm -hmm. FSU to basically not make mistakes, and they'd easily win that game if they did that. The issue is FSU made an immense amount of mistakes between missed assignments, penalties, 11-4, I think it's 114, nine of which mm -hmm. came in the second half. FSU blew up several of their own offensive drives, and they wholeheartedly helped JSU's second-to-last touchdown drive by keeping it alive targeting which we can argue till we're blue in the face that that targeting call is a rough one to call but that takes an interception off the board that ends that drive there there's so many examples of that sort throughout that game where 
it, it's a lot of sabotaging of themselves. And that's been an ongoing issue. Hell for five years, six years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After the game, one of the things that stuck out to me was uh, Mike Norvell's comment about reevaluating and making some potential personnel changes. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of wiggle room. Um, you know, for the most part, at a lot of positions, the the talent from from tier one to tier two kind of drops off. So we don't know how many changes can be made. But we did see one somewhat major change announced on Monday. Um, Chris Knee of Knowles 24-7 broke the news that Florida State offensive lineman Dante Lucas is no longer with the program. Dante Lucas was a one-time four-star commitment out of IMG that came in with a lot of promise, a lot of expectations. Um, He was going to change the mentality of the offensive line. He was going to bring some physicality to the offensive line. It never panned out, you know, whether it was under Mike Norvell and Alex Atkins, whether it was Greg Fry, Willie Taggart, um, you know, Dante Lucas had, I think, three different offensive line coaches, two different head coaches, but the results were the same. Um, A lot of penalties from him, a lot of mental mistakes, a lot of emotion that sometimes got in the way of his play. And now um, Dante Lucas is gone. Chris, comment on the Dante Lucas tenure at Florida State. No, but more importantly, what does it mean for the offensive line? Well, it's not great in the sense of their depth already was not good. He played in that game on Saturday. It appeared he got benched towards the end of that he game. played Notre Dame game, too. In. Yes, he played in both games. He played in 21 career games at FSU. He had 14 starts, 7 and 19, 7 and 20. Um, you know, he's a guy they worked really hard with. There was a lot of effort put in, especially by Alex Atkins to get through with Dante and try to help him get better. Cause Dante is a guy who does have a body and some talent that certainly made him a high level recruit. It's never happened in the college game post injury. It certainly hasn't happened with him. The issue for Dante is too many penalties on the field. Uh, stubbornness is a tough thing for a young man to overcome. I think in the end here, you know, it is what it is. Dante actually issued a pretty respectful statement about coach Norvell and coach Atkins and, the way they worked with him and, you know, he'll hit the portal, I presume, and find a new home next, but it just didn't work. It hadn't worked for a long time. There was an effort made. He, to Dante's credit, I thought in the preseason had shown signs of maturity, but then the games rolled around and it looked like the old Dante racking up penalties and it's not something they can live with. So Zane Hearing's now the reserve left guard for Dylan Gibbons. Truth is I don't expect Zane Hearing to play very much. I, I think physically still a year off especially in the strength department after coming off of surgery last year. So, so who, Brady who plays guy, Gibbons? Well, probably Brady Scott. You know, I mean, it's DLT, Gibbons, really are those guards. And you got Brady Scott, you know, but like Robert Scott got banged up, we believe. He definitely left the game. We believe it was for injury. He was, Saturday, he, he, he was limping on the sideline, which would track with, right. with this preseason. So we don't know the availability for him next week. Obviously, Marie Smith missed this game, only played half of Notre Dame because he's had an ongoing injury. They're thin as hell up there, and it's super concerning. There's a reason they're recruiting so many offensive linemen this year because they so desperately need to restock that cupboard. But they're in a tough pinch, and they got 10 games left over the next, what, 11 weeks it is? 
yeah, you, you just big bodies get banged up. It, it's that's one of the spots. My hopes and expectations for them maybe doing something this season diminishes more and more because of the fact that that group I expected to deal with issues and they don't have any room for error or to deal with those issues. And I don't know that Lucas helps him. I just know he had the experience that you could at least plug him in. You don't have somebody that automatically steps into that role that has any kind of similar experience. And I am no lover of Dante Lucas and what he did on the field, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Did Devonte love Taylor Chris look right to you the last two weeks? Does he look like Devonte last year? He doesn't look like he's in great game shape, and that's to be expected because he had the knee injury and was late to get back out in camp. But now he does. He does. Devonte doesn't look up to snuff to what I think Devonte knows he can be and what he's capable of. And I think it's solely, you know, he probably lacked the ability to stay in great strength and conditioning shape with regards to dealing with the injury. Uh, Brendan, any other personnel changes that you can foresee besides this um, move with Dante Lucas? Do you think this was what Mike Norvell was talking about in the press? No, no, I don't think that that was specifically it. It seemed to be in regards to the offense that he was talking about. And to me, I think what I took away from it was the way they were going to rotate their wide receivers, the usage there. For example, Andrew Parchment had 50 snaps on Saturday, 50-ish. Uh, Darren Williamson leads the team in receiving, and he had half of that. I think you start seeing that kind of flip in younger guys, whether it's Malik McLean being more, and he's involved anyways. Malik yeah. gets a start, but getting more design touches. Uh, he's got to come up with the ball uh, consistently, but him, Darren Williamson. He's a true freshman. Yeah. We're asking, we're that's asking a true freshman to be consistent. Yeah. But I, that's that's also what we knew going into this season. They were going to be heavily, heavily reliant on a true freshman. And unfortunately, Andrew Parchment through two games hasn't been what you hoped he would be. If you were FSU and looking at it in the most optimistic viewpoint, Pokey Wilson hasn't been 100%. He left last week's game with an injury, missed his past week's game. Keyshawn Hilton, who had a great preseason and a very good first game, dropped a critical pass that we've talked about in the first game or the first play of this past game. Uh, so the guys that you entered the year saying, okay, if these three or four can be solid for us, we'll feel good about, ha- have been tested very early on, and that's going to force you to start going and, and looking. Do we try to get Ken Trampodier in there more? Do we? Is Brian Robinson, who's had really good moments the last two weeks yeah. of practice, is he ready? Just like the offensive line, Chris alluded to, it feels like we're already kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel for options two games into the season. It doesn't. I said it all summer. Great. This team, this wide receiver unit is built on a bunch of number threes. Like ideally, all of the guys that we're saying need to step up, all of these guys, whether it be Keyshawn Helton or Andrew Parchment or Malik McLean in a, as a freshman, I really, I, I like Malik McLean, but if we're being honest, these are all number three and number four wide receivers. And it's sad that Florida State's in the situation where they have to choose their number one from a bunch of number threes. I mean, you're getting number three output from your number ones anyway. So I don't I mean, know McClain, if there's much you can do at wide receiver. McLean can be a good one, but that's a heck of a lot to ask of a freshman. Yeah, that's my point. Yeah, same for Burrell and others of that time. And you're, I understand, like Chris is saying, it's a lot to ask from a freshman. Well, if you ask it, you're going to get mistakes. Right. You're going to. Like, it's just going to happen. So, okay, so take Malik McClain out of your number one, because even if you put him at number one, he's not going to play like a number one. Uh, Andrew Parchment, the list goes on. I mean, I don't think any of these guys are going to be a number one for FSU. So what do you do? I mean, I, I well, 
I think the simplest answer I can give, FSU's offense has an identity crisis through two games. Mm-hmm. It starts at the quarterback position. They can run the ball. That's the one thing I know FSU can do offensively. I think they need to line up and be a run-heavy team. But when it comes to receivers, I think the main thing is play to the strengths of the individuals. If one guy is better for you vertically, use him more as a vertical type. If one guy is more effective as, you know, fight in the middle, a little bit more uh, capable of handling the bank, the banging of the So who's the, the vertical guy? I think I would love Keyshawn Helton to be, but the drop early in that game is critical. Um, mm-hmm. But it's clear they try to use him. Douglas is one that you sneak out there some in that regard. McLean and Williamson are the types that can win in tight spaces, bounce off the ground and use their vertical ability in the sense of getting up and catching at the apex. Um, but, you know, at the same time, if you're going to be a quick pass offense, you got to block effectively on the outside. And that's been a mixed bag. Andrew Parchment, for every good block he makes, makes a really bad one. You know, you can't have that. You, you can't trust guys to be your receivers who aren't going to do it when they don't have the ball. And right now, FSU's, Top guys, including especially Andrew Parchment, have haven't been particularly good without the ball in their hands. And, and that, we saw considered. that last year from yeah. guys like Jordan Young and and I, others that you know had an opportunity. Jay Sean Corbin run, I want to say, in the Jacksonville State game. Corbin got a nice chunk, but he would have had a healthy chunk more. And who knows if it goes for even more if Parchment did his job and he simply didn't. Can't have that. You're not a good enough team to get away with being mediocre. It's a sad state of affairs at the wide receiver position. I don't know if it's going to get better. So maybe, like you said, maybe you do trot out a Malik McLean and give him a bigger role. I mean, physically, he's he's the most ready for this level of football. But obviously, being a freshman, you're going to get mistakes out of him. I just – I don't really know what your answers are there. Um, Any other personnel shakeups? I mean, we know linebacker has been an issue, but – Based on what we've seen, well, do you do you anticipate any changes? They have to deal with Kalen Deloach being out for the first half of the Wake Forest game because of the targeting penalty. Right. So they lose him for a half. So they're going to have to figure out that. They've used Amari Gaynor a bit more at the line of scrimmage to try to help with pass rush stuff, basically lining them up opposite Jermaine and trying to get teams to be more balanced and trying to protect instead of you know leaning towards Jermaine, who's been super effective in the pass rush capacity. Uh I think the secondary is going to continue to see a little, uh, not revolving door, but more trying to figure out who it is. There's some guys they want to get in there a bit more, who they need more from. Jones, Dotson, Renardo Green come to mind. Dotson played really poorly this past Saturday, but they like Mm -hmm. him as a staff. I think they believe him. Jones is a guy who was limited in the preseason. Same with Green. So they're kind of working back into it. You need Travis J to be what you want Travis J to be. So you got that. But I, I think the secondary is still a spot where, well, guys are named starters and guys are named reserves. It's not as locked into place as you may think. I don't think there's going to be like a drastic overhaul. We're not going to, the depth chart is not going to drastically change. One, because the option number two at a lot of spots are not better than option number one right now. But they do have to basically, at moments, use the bench as an enforcer to try to make guys to be better. Wide receiver is certainly a position. I, You know, parchments and amount of plays, targets – you can just as easily give that to Williamson. Certainly need to get Douglas a little bit more involved. He was very effective in game one. Yeah. didn't do a whole lot in game two. So there's instances like that, but I don't think – no, I don't think we're going to see any seismic shifts. Has Chris stumped for Wyatt Rector to get a lot more touches? Because all that dude does is score when he gets the ball. No, I, I wanted to leave that for you. Okay. I, I said what I need to say there. He's on scholarship, right? Yes. Yes. This season. 
All right, good. We need more tight ends on scholarship. All right. <laughs> Want to move on and talk a little recruiting, at least the recruiting impact from the game. I talked to some sources inside the Moore just to see um, how things are going. Uh, you know, we saw some reaction from players on Twitter. And as of now, I mean, there's been no fallout from the game, meaning no decommitments, um, no players really speaking out negatively about the program. I don't think we're going to see any decommitments, at least this week. Um, the class is, is still intact. And I spoke to some people, and I can tell you the Florida State coaching staff reached out to all their commitments. And it's not like this was expected, but this also wasn't a complete shock to the recruits. I mean, like we said all offseason, they committed to a three-win team. I don't think anybody expected them to be 0-2 right now. But nobody's jumping off the ship recruiting-wise. I think the biggest impact in recruiting with the loss to Jacksonville State is probably the overall strategy for this staff. I think that heading into the season, we thought that recruiting was finally going to shift and turn to be offensive, meaning like aggressive, trying to add players to the class, trying to put the cherry on top of this class. And after a loss to Notre Dame, we still felt that way. But after this Jacksonville State loss, the recruiting strategy changes for Florida State. They now have to play defense. They have to play defense for the foreseeable future. A win against Wake Forest maybe gets things going in the right direction, but this loss to Jacksonville State was embarrassing. It sets the program back. It sets, even though there's no decommitments, it sets recruiting back because Florida State has to play defense. It seems like they've been playing defense in recruiting since since the Virginia Tech game. That was the last time that Florida State kind of went in, was in the season. Well, it only went one game, but where they were offensive on recruiting, it's always been defensive. It's not ideal. Um, I, I don't I don't know how you shift away from this. I think beating your rivals, you know, beating Miami in November, maybe FSU can get back on the offensive. But for now, I think we're going to see a different strategy in recruiting. Yeah, you hope that doesn't plant a seed of doubt with the guys. It's clear that that class is a relatively strong group and that they understand FSU is going to lose games. That's understood. J losing to JSU is not part of that expectation, I would presume. And you can weather that if you bounce back and, you know, you do a few things and you pull a rabbit out of your hat and win a game or two that maybe mm -hmm. people don't think you're going to win. But as losses stack up and they're going to lose other games, as we all expect, you got to see how it keeps going. And one loss is one loss, but two is two and three is three. And, oh, my God, all of a sudden they're two and five. And it's just tough. It's an avalanche it's, effect. And you can have – you've got, It adds up, like you said. Le the losses Leaders matter. Up. And this class has good leaders. Starts with Travis Hunter, A.J. Duffy's a good one. There's others in it. Those guys help. Rodney Hill is certainly one I would mention, especially because he was willing to go on record and be very vocal about that. That helps a heck of a lot. I also think the FSU staff has done a very good job prepping those guys for a season where expectations are not too high. But it's still a battle. It doesn't and matter. I think, At the end of the day, it's always going to be a battle as losses stack up because yeah. other schools aren't going to stop recruiting. And they're going to use every negative bullet against you they can. And you have to do everything in your power to convince a kid that it is going to get better and you're a huge part of our solution. And we need you. Because FSU desperately needs an injection of talent. And you open yourself up to, and this is what Josh 
touched on with you go from offensive to defensive yeah. to negative recruiting, uh, which is one thing. It also, to, to me, guys, uh, you know more about this than I do. I, it's, it limits the uh, selling points that you have as well. Early playing time, the ability to change the culture of a program is always there. But that proof of concept, which which mm-hmm. after Notre Dame, you could you could sell. And it's so crazy to think about the pendulum swing in like one week that you had all that. You could say, okay, we're getting better. We're moving in this direction. You could sell that. Look now, at what Mike Norvell has sold as a vision. Right. And like you said, if he had proof of concept, imagine what he could sell. And they were going in that direction, Josh. Is what it felt like, and I think that's even after the, the loss, they were. That's still what I'm saying. Yeah, so I'm saying after Notre Dame, and that's one of the things uh, I think for me, myself, for fans that that was so that makes you taken aback, and, and that's kind of breathtaking. Taking Mike Norvell up to this point had shown, and maybe since like the Georgia Tech game in the opener, I thought he's shown an ability to kind of understand what his team was, to evolve, to adapt, and say, okay, even if the the deck is stacked against us we don't have the most talented team we're going to maximize our personnel in the way we can and then mm-hmm. if buy-in sets in and we start getting the right pieces then you take it to the next level and against Notre Dame you saw that at least it felt that way and then it all comes crashing down so quickly and I know that's why I was really taken aback by that game I assume that's why the fan base is so hurt and feels almost betrayed is because you were believing in it and then take that and imagine how recruits that were committed that thought they were going to take the next step feel uh, I think that's what you're now having to deal with. And, and saying it goes from being offensive to defensive, Josh, I think is, is the right way to describe it. Yeah. yeah. The, loss, the loss of JSU creates fervent despair for some at its worst. And I think for others, it just creates doubt. And doubt's mm-hmm. a really tough thing to battle when it enters the conversation. Yeah, especially when you did such a good job of selling the program and selling everything this offseason. Um, it would have been nice to come out in year two with a different start. It's not unsalvageable, if that's a word, but like I said, it shifts the strategy for recruiting, and that's unfortunate at this point. Um, yeah, you have to win. Like you can't sell anything yeah. other than playing time was already there, but you 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 got to win to sell something else now. I think to that's truly true. sell it, right? To get your to get your to get you out of the hole you've dug yourself in. Which make no mistake, Mike has dug himself in a tremendous hole in just two weeks into the season. And, and really in just one week, it's almost mm-hmm. unbelievable to, to think about how, how big things have changed from a per, uh, perception perspective, but it has. And the only way that really changes things, like you said, Josh, is probably winning against a rival in November. Uh, still six wins is still intact, but you have to win six out of your next 10 to probably get to that point and sell something other than early playing time. Because you need to sell yeah. something, uh, other, you have some proof of concept have to exist based on what you allowed yourself to be vulnerable for with negative recruiting after this past weekend. Yeah. And also with losses, sometimes comes coaching changes and with coaching changes comes the loss of relationships and, and doubt like the you loss said, of relationships or the changing of the way you're going to approach and do something with different hires. It changes who you want, who's going to be in your class or who wants to be in your class. And that, that just, that uncertainty, you don't need that in the system mm-hmm. when you're trying to recruit a group that you believe is going to be, a pivotal piece to the foundation of the future of your program. The good sign is that nobody decommitted and which means that Florida States, well, the future of this 2021 class is still in Florida State's hands. Like they still control the destiny of this class. If they go out and beat Wake and kind of get back on track, they'll sign this whole class. Um, Let's move on. I know you guys, meaning you and Brendan, Chris and Brendan, are going to do the Wake Forest preview 
on the bench podcast later this week. Can't wait. <laughs> I do, you know, as we turn the page, um, I want to talk about just the importance of this game. We've we've heard some people say already that this is the most important game in recent history. Chris, you follow this program for a long time. Do you think that's hyperbole or do you think that is fact? Chris has been I saying this, both. by the way. It's I'm going to hype my man up. I'm going to hype him. He's been saying this is an important game. but that gets it, turned It's up. a bit of both. Um, it's the first ACC game, so you got that naturally where you got to deal with the fact that you're trying to you know, start the league play the correct way. But after losing on Saturday and the way you lost on Saturday mm-hmm. and the doubt that's now creeped in people's mind, it adds a whole new dimension to what the game is about. Wake's no easy task. Dave Clawson has a group that's pretty veteran for him. A lot of guys, a lot of experience are deeper than they have been in recent years. He's done a good job of developing that depth and having, I think they have nine super seniors certainly helps that cause. So that's a, it's a heck of a game for them to have to walk into and win. And if they're going to reach that, you know, 500 mark that I've put so much weight on. And I think some of the others in this conversation I've put weight on, they almost have to win Saturday to still probably live in that realm of possibility. All right. So it's a very important game. Winston-Salem yes. on the road. A team that has just had Florida State's number, really, in these down times. I mean, this goes back even a decade, right? Wake, Wake Forest well, has, FSU, has instigated a lot of coaching change in FSU yes, history. Yes. FSU has won seven of the last eight, I believe it is, which seems weird because it feels Doesn't like it's feel been more way. back and forth. It, in it does years. not. That Willie game two years ago is the moment. Do you remember the blackout game against Wake Forest at home? Maybe it was 39 2008 game? I Eight, think it was 2008. Right? I was there. talking about the Jeff Bat- the game that ended Jeff Batman, basically. Yes. Yes. So there's been some memorable games. Maybe it was uh, seven. I think it was either seven or eight. I can't remember, but I was at Yes, that I remember that, Josh. It was miserable. That, horrible. That was another rock bottom moment for the program. Oh, God, they're going to be one I rock felt bottom. really bad after no. that game. <laughs> That last play moment of the JSU game is probably the single worst feeling I've ever had in one moment because watching that 59-yard play happen from a bird's nest view, I mean, you just knew, like, this is not good for felt like a bad trying to accomplish. I, I think, Chris, that that's how, like, I woke up thinking it was it was a dream, but that's how Chris in the press box, we're watching, he's doing the gamer, and I'm just trying to watch reaction in that moment. Uh, and as you see the play kind of open up and develop, I'm 99% sure the only thing Chris said he muttered under his breath was, oh, no, as he saw it happen. And it wasn't him rooting. I think I, I perceived it as Chris just being like, one, this is going to be a seismic shift for the program. And then two, uh, oh, no, I have to rewrite my game story real quick. The weird thing to me, though, is it never felt like Florida State was going to lose. Like, no, even it didn't. On the drive, didn't feel like Florida State was going to lose. Well, you're not the last play of the game. game. It wasn't even a Hail Mary situation. Didn't feel like they were going to lose. When he caught the ball, didn't feel like they were going to lose. And then, like, all of a sudden, they lost. But it was a disgusting feeling that it came down to that moment. Absolutely. Uh, and oh, it's yeah. amazing. The, that moment me, has it put felt so like much focus. In, in, a, in a blink of an eye, I saw all the missed opportunities that could have ended that ball game. Like, it run through my head in an instant, whether it be uh, drop passes, whether it be dropped interceptions, third and longs. Yeah, I, it just was like it all happened as he crossed the end zone. And it was like it it felt worse because there were so many blown opportunities. The, the it, defense it, allowed three long drives, but in general actually had a pretty good day. But the last play takes all that out of conversation because yeah, all yeah. you think about is the last play. 
the offense was miserable on the day. It was not enjoyable to watch FSU play offense in that game. Mm-hmm. No, and especially with the offense, like the expectations, it's like, oh, the, Mike Norvell with Kenny Dillingham, you know, taking taking chicken, you know, what and turning a chicken salad last year. Like you felt like, okay, if anything this year, we can depend on the offense to at least have some modicum of functionality. And for them to to have really no identity or the thing that they were doing well to go away from it, which was running it with Jay Sean Corbin and Trey Sean Ward uh, for the quarterback situation to feel, I know they, they know they need both this year, but it felt like Jordan Travis's confidence was leaking throughout the game. Uh, that's not two games in a row where you feel like, like fairly sensitive dude who's, who's paying attention to what people are saying and how he's being perceived. <sighs> to your point, Josh, there's usually 12 to 15 plays in a close game. And Norvell's talked about this before. And it is true. Like that, that will swing the pendulum one way or the other. Mm-hmm. In this game, man, it felt like there were about 30 different opportunities Florida yeah. State had to where this game doesn't doesn't get to that point. But that's how you end up losing to an FCS Absolutely. team as a 25-point uh, favorite. That, that's how you lose, and that's how you get to the point where we are now. With me dusting off another rock bottom column, Chris Knee uttering, oh boy, in the press box. Oh boy. <sighs> FSU was up 10 with 446 left in that game, I believe it is. Yep. And they lose. And Norvell brought that up today in the At press home. conference. And and. That's the one thing I'd say the tone to me, like I wish that the coaches and he said like the players didn't respond with the way we thought we were, they were going to in that moment. And yeah, man, that's true. Like the, the players did not play well. Uh, I thought FSU's coaching staff and I'm not usually one who's quick to jump on coaches. I thought they didn't do themselves any favor uh, in on Saturday. I don't think they do themselves any favors the way that game ended and the way they were calling the game. Personnel oh, Josh, usage. Josh going whiteboard on us? No, nah, yeah, I got it ready, but I'm not ready to use it. You like see this? <laughs> I've, I've gotten so many um, people in my mentions about dusting off the whiteboard this this weekend that uh, I had to dust it off. But I'm not ready to use it. It's way too early, guys, to be to be talking coaching hot boards at, at any position. Hopefully around 8.30 p.m. on Saturday during the instant reaction from Truist Field in lovely Winston-Salem, North Carolina. We're celebrating a 1-2 and two football team because 0-3 is a, a – it's, it feels no better it's a than a dusty that. road to be going down. Do we know yeah. dusty roads? <laughs> uh, do we know the last time FSU went over three? Was Chris? So now I'm just trying to get through Monday, buddy. All right, let's get out of here. But before we, I'll do, look it up for you. I'll put it on the message. Board. All right, how about one that you can't answer? What was the last time FSU won an ACC road game? I know the answer to this. Oh, right, what is the answer? Go ahead, fire away. I was getting yelled at by a, an FSU employee in the press box. Will be the hint. Just no. Just give us okay. The answer. Lu- Louisville twenty eighteen. Let me cheat on the test. Louisville twenty eighteen. Oh well. You don't like the turnover back. Oh well. Special right. teams, right? That's what created the yelling situation. I said FSU special teams remains a hot mess after a ball bopped uh, Anthony Grant. God. Well, all the names of uh, all the Anthony all the, Grant goes like seventy five departures ago. All the gems that that era gave us. It hit Anthony Grant in the back of the head. I said FSU special teams remains a hot mess. Uh, spoiler: They filed Alonzo Hampton at the end of the season, special teams coordinator. Hmm. It was a hot mess. All right, you guys, we're gonna get out of here in a minute. We're in a good spot, Josh. You guys are um, experts in a lot of things, and, and so mm-hmm. am I. But I'm not an expert in in everything. So I just had a question because I'm going to pick your brain on this. Is there ever a time, and I might do this like in the next year or so, this might happen for me. I'm excited. 
is there ever a time when you pull an audible on your proposal, your wedding? <laughs> oh man, no. no Wait, you, this just, you just you laid the plan, steam ahead, no through. matter what. The man thought I, they were gonna win. It's clear. No, he thought they were gonna. Everybody we thought did. they were gonna win. Uh, the the bet the upside is you win and you and you propose. We're talking about Brady Scott proposing, and it's gotten some national headlines. The best the upside is you win against an FCS team and you do the proposal there. Uh, I will give Brady a lot of credit. He's leaned into it. He's like taking the barstool uh, story on it and has put his w- wedding registry link to it. Uh, so so we'll put that in the story. We'll let Brady have his moment because he's handled it well. Uh, so there's no like, audibles in proposing. I almost did I on so. mine. So here's the thing, Josh, and, and I think Omaha. The Omaha, Omaha. Uh, the big I mean, news uh, is that Josh. Wait, hang on, hang on. The big news is Josh, that Josh said he may do this in a mo- in a year. Which Mazel Tov to you, sir. Um, hopefully, Allison isn't listening to this. Uh, spoiler alert. So I had my engagement ring, and I'm not going to brag, but it was a nice engagement ring. I never want to get something out of my possession that fast in all my life. We went to uh, Alligator Point, which is a place Ashton and I love to go to here. It's a cool, like little brackish, like sanctuary with a with a uh, uh, here here in uh, Tallahassee or near Tallahassee with a cool lighthouse. It's just really pretty. A lot of cool nature stuff. Spent a lot of time there, and we went there. And, and uh, I went there with the intent to propose, but I want to kind of be secretive about it. So yeah, I wasn't dressed up fancy or anything like that. Yes, I proposed in basketball shorts. Oh, well, we didn't get have to a, the a uniform on. He kept no. it real. Um, I'm trying to like hide it and like by the side of the car so she can't see it. Uh, of course, like the tire, the air on the tire goes out, so we have to stop and like fill it up, uh, go in there. So there's all sorts. It started pouring rain. There's all sorts of things that were maybe signaling like not right now is the best time. But we get to uh, the end of, of Alligator Point or uh, St. Mark's, uh, which is basically um, sorry St. Mark's. So we get to the end of the lighthouse. There's no cell phone reception there. There never is any. Well, there was only one car. It was a random unmarked moving van, all red. And there was a dude on FaceTime there screaming into the phone, cursing, MFing, who's ever on the other side of the phone. And to me, like, there's just no way there, there was a cell phone reception out there. I don't know how he was FaceTiming with someone. And I didn't hear anyone on the other side. So in my mind, I'm like, I got this you know, ring that's probably the most expensive thing I'll ever have on me at any given point. Like, if he wanted to, like, stab and kill me and sell it, like, he would have made some nice money uh, off of it. And uh, and but you have to push forward with it, Josh. You do, and so and you and you move past the crazy man, and you go and you propose, and you get the job done. I don't think Josh expected this response when he asked the question. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, what do you want Brady to do? He's got the ring there. He's someone's carrying it for him, presumably. You want him to not do it? Like I get, just like you don't the the diet the you know the uh, you, you just have one of the worst moments in program history taking place. And were you nervous before you proposed? Oh yeah, yes. and it's funny. Even how? You know hold on, the hold answer, on. Stop talking. How okay. long were you nervous for? Uh, well, I did it in DC. I think basically from the time we flew from down here to up there, I was nervous from the get go. Yeah. So, do you think Brady Scott sitting there in the fourth quarter thinking, oh, "Damn, I got, I got this proposal coming in like five minutes"? I don't know. I would like to get Brady on the bench to talk about it. I'm going to see if FSU will make that happen. So. I'm riding home today and I'm listening to whatever the show is on Sirius XM College with Heward and EJ Manuel. I think it's Brock Heward. There's a bunch mm-hmm. of Hewards, but I think it's Brock. And obviously Brock's in a – it was Brock because Brock's in a bad place because UW is 0-2 and looked bad against Michigan, lost Montana. So then he hands off the baton to EJ to talk about FSU losing and 
EJ is not in a good place with regards to FSU losing. Yeah, but he was he very got, embarrassed. He I don't know, you guys were in the stadium, but they threw it to EJ in the booth right after the loss, and he, yeah. he didn't have a whole lot to say. He got poked and prodded by Heward about Brady's proposal, and he's like, read the room! <laughs> Which, EJ's a great dude, so it just humored me hearing him have that moment. It, it will be a, memorable. I don't... I felt bad for Brady that became a thing. I'll just say that. Right. Yeah, because Brady's a, a generally nice like. And I, it's not game. why they lost the game, obviously. No, no, no it's just it with full game. intention of expecting them to win. It's like FSU. That's just, why he picked that game. FSU just can't lose in an ugly fashion. It always has to have a sideshow with it too. Like it can't just be incompetent on offense one week. It also has to have Trey McKitty facing the wrong direction. You know what I mean? Right. Like it ever just can't be the moment of the loss and it being like deflating and newsworthy on itself. There's always has to be something that takes a little further. I think that would be the one thing. It's like, can we just not have a, have a sideshow? But I think uh, somehow, some way the story comes full circle. Hopefully like Brady's Brady, Scott gets Brady has redemption. a baby in a few years and his name Jackson or something like that. Jacksonville Scott, the third, you know, there's like always uh there, like people take a photo on the beach and there's somebody in the background like doing something weird and it's like oh that engagement photo would have been perfect had they not been planting the flag of jacksonville state in the background we had wedding crashers at my wedding there was old people sitting there in the crowd that no one knows who they who they were why they were there i think they were ghosts all right if you guys need more there's a lot on Knowles 24 7 zach has an update uh, some recruiting stuff going on. They're still breaking down the game from Jacksonville State. We're about to turn the page and look forward to Wake Forest. Um, any shout-outs, anything you guys want to get off your chest? Oh, Brendan has a uh, – okay, you'll see that on video. That's Brendan's departing message. Chris, you got anything? No, nah, I'm good, man. All right. Um, shout-out to Big Man, Big Heart, the podcast I'm doing with Dylan Gibbons. That'll drop on Wednesday morning. Should be interesting to get Dylan Gibbons' side of things. But um, thank you for listening to On the Bench. We'll be back on Friday. Probably Thursday. Thursday. on Friday. Probably Thursday. We will be back on Thursday. original and heartfelt movie in years magic like this comes around once in a lifetime this friday experience it with your whole family can we do it again if ready pg